Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is August 7th, 2023. And today in studio, IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, is going to describe to us a new conservative blueprint for healthcare reform. Now, Dr. Matthews, when I see this topic, I have to confess I roll my eyes a little bit mm-hmm. <laughs> because conservatives have been big critics of Democrat healthcare plans, but have not done a great job of presenting their alternatives. And right. in fact, this reminds me very much of the episodes we went through with the idea of repeal and replace Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And when push came to shove, Republicans either did not have a plan or they did not have a plan that they had enough confidence in that they stood behind it. Right. They they, they basically campaigned for years on repeal and replace. Mm-hmm. And when if I were giving a speech and somebody would say, well, what do they want to replace it with? I'd had to say, well... <laughs> <laughs> there are Republican plans, but there's no Republican plan. Because yeah, there wasn't consensus, right. really, on the center-right. And eventually, uh, Paul Ryan, as Speaker, created sort of an outline of something, but still had not had legislative language. And when um, uh, when they had a chance to do it in 2017, when Donald Trump came in, they did not have a plan to be able to, uh, to, they wanted to repeal Obamacare and then they wanted to replace it with the Republican plan, but they didn't have a plan to replace yeah, no, it. No, I painfully remember this dynamic because this was the whole idea, right? It's like, let's repeal it now and then you can trust us to come up with something right, better. Right, that's exactly right. And and frankly, people just didn't. And they decided to they decided to come up and try to do it at the same time, to repeal and replace. And so then Republicans said, well, we've got to hurry up and, and try to come up with a replacement plan. And that ended up going through several months. I think it was in August of 2017 where they finally decided they were going to see if could they repeal it and replace it. And John McCain, senator then, said no, and the thing fell apart. And these were the first two years of the Trump administration. Yeah, so you did. Yeah, first. So you did have control. You did have Republican control. You did have Republican control. Not huge margins, but you had Republican control. And. And so as we look back, it's like, well, if there was an opportunity to do it, that was the opportunity. And they didn't. And so we haven't heard much from Republicans about health care reform since then. It's almost like they've still been, they've been so sort of damaged by that experience. That, I, I think that's fair. Yeah. And, and they have sort of nipped at the edges a little bit, but they haven't really come up with a plan. Well, now uh, three Hoover Institute scholars led by Lanny Chin. Uh, have come out with a plan, and it's uh, it's it's basically it's not a completely restructuring. In fact, they make a point that it's not. They're trying to, in essence, build on what's out there. And they start out in this plan by talking about some of the problems, and they're absolutely right. They say that the system is essentially broken, and they ask, why is our system so broken? Well, one thing is you've got sort of two different visions. On the left, they will argue that they'll essentially say health care is different. You'll have people progress to say, I believe in the market in some things, but health care is different. Uh, you can't really go in and shop for price in health care because it's hard to get prices. If you're on the emergency room table, you can't really say, 
will give me some alternatives here because I'm trying to, uh, you know, I want to be able to make the best value for my, get the best value for my money. So they, the left sort of feels like healthcare is a right and the government ought to step in and provide that right through a government run healthcare system. But on the other hand, uh, those of us on the right, Mm -hmm. when we hear that, we say, okay, are you talking about like Canada and are you talking about like the British healthcare system, the and, national health? And the health, answer is yes. <laughs> where people have to wait seven months yes. for an MRI. I mean, you know, I, I, I have recently had need to have several, several different kinds of medical tests scheduled. And I've had the luxury in the U.S. system of being a call, call up on a Tuesday and get an MRI on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if I lived in Canada or the U.K. or other places like that, there would be, there could be, there, there are many months delay Might between be the need minute. for something and the actual opportunity to have an appointment. And just in July, uh, doctors in the UK system, the what they call the National Health Service, went on strike. So the younger doctors went on strike first for five days, and the older doctors who oversee them went on strike for two days. And they said, we're, gonna, we're still going to make sure that you have emergency care. If you're pregnant and you need to come in, we're going to take care of that. But other than that, you just, don't get to what, you just don't get an appointment. You don't get to see the care. Yeah, and unfortunately for a lot of conditions, you need to catch them early. Right. You know, I mean, this is one of the truly tragic things about COVID, whereas people were not able to go in and see doctors for anything other than COVID. And so you actually have a statistically significant increase in cancers and things like that 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 went undetected until later on in the illness. So, you know, this idea of somehow we could do emergencies for you, but testing and stuff like that has months and months in delay. Well, that could be the difference between a successful outcome and an unsuccessful outcome. So generally, conservatives, conservative-leaning economists believe that health care can follow the rules of the market. That is, its supply and demand can be there, that people can be good consumers, can make good choices. Doesn't necessarily mean if you're in a car accident and you're being rushed to the hospital that you're going to be a consumer in health care. But that's, that's a very small percentage of the total health care expenses that we face. So what they're trying to do is to bring is to pull together a system that sort of draws upon these aspects of a consumer-driven healthcare system, something we've talked about in the past, and implement reforms that give individuals incentives to ask, where do I get value for my money? How do I find out how much it costs? Essentially making consumers out of healthcare a patient in the vast majority of cases. And I want to just interrupt for a second because the important thing here is that the counterpoint to consumer-driven is government-driven. Government-driven, right? right? Or third-party payer-driven, right? I mean, the thing is that the thing is a as a healthcare consumer, the thing is a patient that drives you up the wall is when it seems that it's the insurance company making the choices for your healthcare, mm-hmm. not your doctor, right? Right. And when you get to a situation where it's the government making those decisions, not your doctor, that's not an improvement. That's even worse <laughs> yeah. than your insurance company making the decision. So we would like to have a situation where the decisions are actually made in consultation between the patient and the doctor, between the patient and the professional. Right. So there's four basic elements to their plan, and I'll just run briefly through these four elements. The first one is create individual health accounts. Now, Our listeners may be familiar with a health savings account that's been 
around since 2003. Prior to that, the, the forerunner was, that, uh, was called a medical savings account. But typically, a health savings account, you have to have a high-deductible health plan. It's got to be qualified. There are several rules and restrictions that are applied to that. And what they're trying to do is expand this notion to what's called an individual health account. They say it's going to be sort of like a health savings account and an IRA combined, so that you'll be able to make tax-free contributions to this. Um, they're going to be uh, they're going to change how it works with uh, insurance. Everybody will be able to have one if you've got a qualified high deductible plan. Uh, a- annual contribution limits are going to be higher. And the purpose behind this is to make is to take health insurance and have health insurance there for a major accident or illness. But in the large majority of healthcare decisions, I would have a tax-free account that either I or my employer, or in some cases the government might have put money in, and I've got this money available to me, and then if the doctor says, okay, you need a prescription, then I have a reason for saying, well, would a generic uh, prescription drug be just as good as a brand name here because I'm this money's coming out of my individual health account, and I'd like to be able to make sure I'm getting value from money. If a brand name is better for what I need, then fine, I've got the money there, but I want to ask the doctor, I want to interact with the doctor about what I should be using here. So they're expanding this idea of the individual health account. Now, this is the kind of thing you have been writing about for decades. Right. Right. I mean, the whole idea of the whole idea of insurance is not to protect you from day to day expenses. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of insurance is to protect you from unexpected events. Right. right. Typically, just because the, the, the way that a, a homeowner's policy doesn't protect you for all the repairs that you need to right. do to your house. Right. It's there if a major uh, if a w- storm comes tornado, fire, something like that, it right. comes in and covers you, you for that major Your car cost. insurance doesn't pay for your oil changes, right? <laughs> but but if you're in an accident, right, mm-hmm. it pays for it. And so the, the problem today is that we expect health insurance to pay for everything. Exactly and so this right. would be this would be returning the idea of insurance to a more faithful concept of what insurance is for. And when you're talking about the issue of price, there's been discussions around the country. Some states have passed price transparency laws that try to say, we want the hospitals to tell everybody what their costs are going to be. But that doesn't, if the insurance company has negotiated a discounted price, do I want to know what the hospital's flat, you know, initial price is, or do I want to know what the discounted price is? And if I have a deductible that's much lower than the cost of the care, do I really care what the price is? And this is something I've sort of harped on for some time. People say, we need to know what hospital prices are going to be. The vast majority of Americans are covered by insurance. If I, if I have a $2,500 deductible and my surgery, I don't, if my surgery is going to cost $10,000 or $35,000, I don't you really don't care. care. You don't care. I'm out $2,500. Yeah, exactly. Regardless, you know what your cost is going to be. And if I think the $35,000 buys me a better physician doing the care, I may not say, well, do I get good enough care with the Mm -hmm. $10,000? I may say, let me have the best because somebody else is paying it. So if you want to try to get people interested in prices, uh, if you want to get the healthcare system revealing prices, patients are going to have to demand to know what prices are before there's really this this incentive to try to make those realistic prices available. Sure. And and just, you know, just to be, just as a real world example, if your insurance says MRIs only cost you a $250 deductible, 
you have no incentive to shop around to three or four different MRI providers in your area no. to see who's the cheapest because it doesn't matter. It's only going to cost you 250 bucks either way. So it's it, the health insurance and the cost of things are really convoluted in our system. It's a mess. And I'll just give you an example. Here I went to the pharmacy the other day, day to get a, a prescription fluoride for your teeth. Um, I think my cost with insurance was about $12. And I was talking to the head pharmacist here, and I was mentioning something about something in the law that passed in 2017, the tax reform law that prohibited uh, that that where pharmacy benefit managers prohibited some pharmacists from telling you there's you you could pay out of pocket cash and get price, cheaper by cash yeah, price. Right. So I just I was telling about that and I said, just out of curiosity, what's the cash price for this? If I if I bypass the insurance company and I just pay you the cash price. He went over, oh, let me go and look. So we had to take my insurance element out of there and he looked five dollars. <laughs> so, so you were paying co- more. My copay with insurance was about twelve dollars. My cash price, if I was uninsured and I was just paying cash, was going to be $5. So he said, well, let me take your insurance out. And I paid $5 and walked out $7 richer. But before the recent change in policy, am I correct in understanding that they weren't allowed to tell you that? In in many cases, the agreements between the pharmacy benefit managers and the pharmacies. Now, this particular pharmacist didn't know anything about that. So that wasn't an issue. It was just that under the the insured price, I actually had to pay more out of pocket. (laughs) than the cash price. And so this is how convoluted our system is. And before you're going to be able to really address some of these issues, you've got to give people, and I was asking not to save money. I was just asking because I was just curious. Professional curiosity, right? Professional curiosity. I ended up saving money out of it. (laughs) So they want to try to uh, really expand the, the idea of the health savings account to individual health accounts and use them for many more purposes. So that's, that I think is a good idea. Secondly, they want to extend the tax deductibility of -of out-of-pocket payments. So what that means right now is if I have employer-based health insurance uh, and my employer is buying my health insurance, I get essentially a tax break. It's called a tax exclusion. Uh, It's not considered income. Uh, The question is, so you have people who want to get employer-based health insurance because they get the tax break. If you're self-employed, you get to deduct that from your uh, health insurance from your uh, from your income. But if I go out and I just spend something out of pocket, I don't get to deduct that. Right. So there's been this discussion among economists. I know some of them who have not liked this notion, but what they're going to do to try to essentially sort of level the playing field, they're just saying uh, qualified health expenses become tax deductible events for you. So there's no real incentive for me to try to get insurance as tax deductible because my health care expenses are going to be tax deductible as well. If I'm pulling money out of my individual health account, that's tax deductible because the money went in there tax deductible. Yeah. So they're essentially looking at a way to try to just make all health care expenditures tax deductible. Now, there's some interplay there with the recent tax reform, with the 2017 tax reform, because in exchange for getting a larger standard deduction, mm-hmm. uh, the tax reform made it raise the threshold for right. deducting health care expenses. Right. So there are people who were able to deduct their health care expenses before the 2017 reform that no longer can. So this would obviously involve sort of making some alterations to that, too. It, it would. So okay. they're, they're essentially trying to put it on a level playing field. And one of the, uh, the, the flip side of that coin had been to make all health insurance taxable. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the proposals out under the Bush administration. 
Health insurance becomes taxable, but we're going to give you a big tax credit, yeah. something set aside for that. They got beaten up badly for that, so did well, John it's, McCain. <laughs> it's it's so difficult because of you know, once you once you give somebody a benefit, it's hard to take it back. Right. right? And and Democrats took advantage of this. Even though you were going to get a, a separate tax credit to offset that, they said uh, and I remember Obama out there saying, John McCain, for the first time ever, is going to make health insurance taxable. How terrible is that? Yep. And so it, it was a political issue. You just couldn't get past that. And this all goes, we don't have time to drill down on this, but this all goes back to the decision that was made decades ago that employer-provided health insurance was a deductible expense to the right. employer. They, the employer started doing that during World War II yeah. as a wage, because they had wage and wage controls on, so they mm-hmm. were looking for some way to attract people. They started offering health insurance. Is that going to be taxable? And the uh, uh, the uh, Labor Department said, no, we're not going to do that. And then later on, they made that, um, they codified that in law. And so that's one of the reasons why we have tax-free health insurance. So, for yes. so now you have this disparity, whereas if you're getting your health insurance from an employer, mm-hmm. the cost of the, someone is getting a tax deduction for the cost of the health insurance. They're getting the, a, a tax exclusion. If yeah. you go out and buy it, you get a tax deduction. But I think the tax exclusion is actually worth greater. more. Yeah, yeah. And so, and that's one of the reasons why um, unions and so forth want to get such rich health insurance benefits because it's all excluded. They think they're making the man pay for it. But actually, <laughs> economists would say it's coming out of your pay. Right. You just don't realize that. Right. Uh, so the third thing, expand available supply of health care. So what they want to do here is telemedicine became a big issue. We've been talking about telemedicine for a decade. Yep. It became a big issue under COVID. It took COVID to make it a reality. Make it a reality. And they want to expand that availability of that. So that's one option there. They also want to expand co- what we call scope of practice. So nurse practitioners, pharmacists, and others can end up doing some more healthcare procedures that they might not be able to, they might be limited by regulations under law right now. And some of this is also regulated at the state level too. Some of it's regulated state level. There there are some, my understanding is there are some states where the pharmacist can give you a vaccine, Mm -hmm. but other states where they can't. Right. They also want to expand recognition of medical licenses across state lines. And what that means is if if somebody is licensed to, uh, as a, as a dentist or a physician assistant or a doctor in one state, that the states end up going into reciprocal agreements so that those people could practice in my state, my doctors in my state could practice in those other states. So it's an attempt that there are tax laws that do this. Some states do uh, reciprocal agreements uh, where they have, um, uh, you know, if, 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 you're, if somebody's living in my state and, you're, and they're working in your state, we're taxing them in my state where they live, not where you work, and vice versa. There's also, uh, I think, a telemedicine implication there, too, right? Absolutely. Because if you're in one state and you want to consult with a physician in another state. That had been a real problem mm-hmm. because state licensing laws said I could, consult with so- I, I could consult with somebody in my state, but I couldn't go and get, uh, I couldn't practice in another state, go to somebody and right. practice in another state. I could drive there, mm-hmm. but I couldn't do it over the internet. So those kind of regulations prevent somebody. I mean, in, in theory, someone could set up a, a business in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, mm-hmm. a telemedicine cons- consultation, and people from all over the country could consult with a doctor in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Right. But if you've got state regulations that don't allow for the reciprocal acknowledgement of the medical licenses, mm-hmm. then you can't do that. Yeah, they're called interstate compacts, okay. where the states end up making those agreements and allow that to happen. And then they want to uh, expand access to what's called association plans. And right now, associations, 
AARP's association. Uh, various types of associations can join together and offer health insurance through the association. Uh, that's been limited uh, for small businesses and others if they wanted to get together with a small as a small business with other small businesses, and so they want to try to expand that. That's another idea that's been around for for a good while. Yeah. So they're trying to essentially address some of the regulatory prohibitions out there right now and remove some of the regulations. And the final thing they want to do is to empower Medicaid recipients and and uh, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare recipients. They want recipients. They want to be able to give them more options so that somebody in the Affordable Care Act could have an individual health account, or they might have options for other different types of plans within uh, that. So this is because one of the things we thought, one of the things you thought was wrong with the ACA with Obamacare mm-hmm. is the way it defined the parameters of health care, right? right? And you know, you had bronze and gold and silver plans and mm-hmm. everything, but there were requirements that all these plans cover a whole bunch of things. Right. And so it, consumers did not have as much flexibility as they might have, because if, if you were, for instance, a single man, you could not go out and buy a policy that didn't cover maternity. Right. And things like that. So is that the kind of thing they're talking about they, here is more that, flexibility? That's part of it, yes. Okay. Generally speaking, they want to give states more flexibility to figure to work with Medicaid to see if they can do some things that might uh, expand coverage and also reduce cost at the same time. Mm. So it's essentially just an effort to try to give states a little more uh, flexibility to try to, to experiment with things to see if you can come up with a good, some better options than okay. we have right now. Okay. So they have all these things on the table. There's nothing really new here. I, I was just going to say, you have talked and written about all of these things. And what they, So it, it, none of this strikes me as new or revolutionary. They make the point specifically. They're not, they're not trying to overthrow the current system, and they mm. make the point going back to 2009 and Obama. They say, if you have a health insurance plan that you like, you ought to be able to keep that plan. Obama made that statement. It was a lie yep. from yep. then. Yep. But they're making a statement that you like. If you have something that you like, you ought to be able to keep it. But we're looking at doing some things that would uh, apply some flexibility and other options. And we think the better options out there would actually attract more people. And you might see some of these things just go so away. So they're coming in up front and saying, we're not going to take anything away from anybody. Right. We're just going to try to introduce more options and more flexibility. Right, which they hope end up becoming the the options of choice for most people and let some of the less optimal plans and approaches out there begin to just sort of diminish on their own. Well, again, I'm really struck by the fact that all of these elements that you've talked about have all been things that people like you, you know, people people in the consumer-driven healthcare space mm-hmm. have been talking about for decades. Yes. So in a, in a way, it's disappointing that there's nothing new. But on the other hand, what that also suggests is that those ideas, when they were proposed 15 years ago or 10 years ago, were sound. They, they were then. They were sound then, and they're still sound now. And it's also a recognition that you're not going to be able just to do away with Medicare, Medicaid, Children's Health Insurance Plan, Obamacare, they've been around for a long time. Yeah. People use them. That Some people would be afraid to, to have that sort of taken away from them. So it's a rec- political recognition of that. But it's also an eff- effort to try to provide some other options. It seems to me that more and more policy reforms that have the potential to actually take place have this in common, that we're not going to take anything away from you, but we're going to offer you options. Mm-hmm. Like I remember one of the personal retirement option for Social Security reforms was the idea that you stay in the current system if you want to. Mm-hmm. 
right? No, we're not we're not forcing anybody out of the existing system, right? But we're creating an alternative if you want to pursue it, and that's both to give people the chance to stay in something if they like it, but mm-hmm. also to fight the political challenge of of the opponents coming up saying. They're trying to take away right. your Social Security. So maybe maybe the, the big theme for like entitlement reform going forward is, is this, we're not ever going to take anything away from anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just going to, if you like what you have and it's bankrupting the country, we're still going to let you have it because at some point you're going to leave this mortal coil. But in the meantime, we want, to, we want to make other options available for other people who want to give them a try. And I will say this in closing, that s- several of these things several of these things will be divisive. Democrats won't like them. Mm-hmm. But I suspect on some of the things, especially things like telemedicine and some of those things, you may get some bipartisan support for. But again, I mean, if, if you're not taking anything away from anybody, if you're not forcing anybody to do anything, uh, but yet Democrats are still opposed to it. Mm-hmm. That sort of raises questions all its own, right? What, like, what are you afraid of? Yeah, the individual health accounts. We'll see if that works. But they've typically opposed that, even though, even though Democrats were big were supporters of the original medical savings account idea until it became a Republican idea, and they've opposed it. <laughs> They're since. opposed to it, right? Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Matthews. We would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org. If you want to know more about healthcare policy, you will find a lot at our website on healthcare policy, healthcare reform, uh, different ways of paying for healthcare, et cetera. At our website at IPI.org, you can sign up if you'd like to receive notices of all of our upcoming podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, How about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or Spotify or your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.